0: Uh, I was a bit scared. I didn't know what to do next. No, it was all a bit of a fluke, actually, to be completely honest. We, we'd we had a show at university that... That question, I get honestly get asked three or four times a week, and I think that's kind of where it came from, was...
1: Our next guest on the podcast is Clem Garrity, co-founder and creative director of Swamp Motel. Clem and Swamp Motel are... Brilliant for many reasons. They were named in the stage's top 25 people and companies to watch for 2022. They've had national acclaim for their experiences. And for me, they're one of the few companies that truly experiment with the form they're creating in. This chapter is a bit special for me. It's special because I followed sont Motel's work for a long, long time. They enriched the lives of so many audience members during lockdown whilst everyone else is doing recorded versions of old shows, they were making something new, and they were breaking boundaries with their new digital series. But these guys are not just doing it on a digital level, they're doing live stuff, they're even going into TV and film. And as Clem explains here, Swamp Motel are different, and purposely so. What struck me about the conversation afterwards was how honest and open Clem was about something that is considered a dirty or taboo subject in in theatre and in the arts, making money. Here, Clem opens up his diary and shows us why Swamp Motel have been so successful and how, maybe, you can be too. So, let's check in to the grungy spot just outside the mainstream, this is the director's diary. It's no one's intention ever to share a diary. So if you're listening to this, keep it close and use it well. Hi, Clem. Uh, So good to get you on the podcast. Um, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, Welcome.
0: Good. Likewise. Thanks for having me.
1: Great. So um, a tradition of the podcast is a bit of a strange one. I'm going to ask you to tell us your life story in two minutes. So obviously an impossible task, but hopefully an interesting one. So um, two minutes starting now.
0: Love it. Love the challenge. Already wasted one second there. OK, hi. Yeah, I um, I, I grew up in a small town outside of Manchester uh, and I, I always had a, a passion for uh, telling stories, I suppose, not to sound like a... Um, too wanky from the get-go, but uh, I I loved drama at school and English and uh, ended up going to University of Warwick and studying drama there and uh, meeting a whole group of brilliantly sort of like-minded people at university, be that on the drama course or in the drama societies or bumping into them on, you know, very drunken nights out, uh, who sort of all wanted to create theatre and And uh, it was sort of pushed me to to challenge myself a lot more and um, make things in more interesting and different ways than I ever had been doing. Uh, And then when I left uni, the sort of the the prevailing uh, sort of consensus at my uni anyway was to go to London and, um, you know, make it big uh, or at least try to. So um, sort of scared of leaving that momentum behind, I moved to London. And uh, I, I did a master's in scenography and production design because I thought I'll be a production designer to begin with. Um, I like doodling sets and um, uh, and that kind of thing. Sort of fell out of love with that and then sort of ended up just bobbing around the fringe theater scene of London for sort of all of my twenties my really. And then um, uh, sort of towards the end of my twenties, as I suddenly realized I should probably have, you know, an ISA or be able to pay my rent and bills. I, uh, with a a business partner and my best friend, basically, we decided to establish Swamp Motel, uh, which was kind of pitching itself as um, a company that was full of theatrical creatives that advertisers and brands could come to, to work with. That I think is two minutes and two seconds, so sorry.
1: Amazing. There's so much to unpick there. Could, could I ask you, um, that decision to move to London? Yeah. Looking back on it now, was that the right decision for you or could you have done something else? And and what in your, could, could you like cast yourself back in and what was the mindset that you were in? You, you mentioned momentum, but like what, what other things were at play?
0: Um, I think it was the right decision. I don't know that I needed to do my MA in hindsight, which is a horrible thing to admit after spending quite so much money on it. But uh, yeah, I think it was the right thing to do. I I, I loved education. Like, I really loved my A-levels. I loved my my degree course, my my undergrad. And then uh, I, I was a bit scared. I didn't know what to do next. I didn't, you know, with certain jobs there is an apprenticeship or um you know a, a scheme for graduates but for sort of being someone that liked making stories or theater or anything like that there it's all sort of it's it's very broad right and messy mm-hmm. and I guess that's the point of things like this podcast um but yeah I didn't feel like there was any sort of direct route so I just uh, sort of latched myself onto a course that really I don't think I needed to have done but you know you have your sort of parents ringing in your ears and your upbringing on you can't just move to a new city um, <laughs> without any reason to go there so I kind of wish I'd come down to London maybe just got an evening job and then sort of figured out how to get to know more people in this theater world down here in the daytimes or something instead um, which is what I ended up doing after my MA and although it's sort of it's stop start I think you can once you do get going it's quite a it's a good intimate quite small scene where actually lots of people know lots of people and can sort of introduce you to other people and it, it's all down to experience so i kind of wish i i think it was definitely the right decision to make i kind of wish i'd thrown myself into the like okay let's make some stuff like world a lot sooner which is easy to say um you know when you're now able to do it at the time obviously how do I get funding for that? How do I find the right collaborators to work with on that? What venues can to put on this thing that I've got in my head? Um, yeah, it, it was trickier back then, but uh, I think uh, I think it was the right thing to do to come down to London, for sure.
1: And I'm assuming that because you went to uni, the you had a accommodation. You had, did you get funding to go there? Did you get student loan and stuff like that? I,
0: I didn't, but I did have parental help, which I right. then had to pay back. Uh, so yeah, I, I had a, I actually just had a group of us who found a flat, um, relatively near where people were either studying or working or whatever. So I just like jumped on that, moved in with some friends, uh, would study in the daytime. And then I actually worked in a massage parlor in the evening, just on the reception desk. I wasn't doing any of the massaging. Um, but yeah, I would do that in the evening to try and pay my rent. So it was sort of yeah it was it was the classic tale massage parlors and and drama
1: I've heard that one before I think yeah definitely mm-hmm. um so when did you start making work in London and what was that like a,
0: a lot of um people from my university like i said did move down so it so it sort of felt like a home from home there were there were lots of people um down and like wanting to do stuff, and at, at Warwick, it, it's a campus university, so there was nothing to do. Like it was very idyllic and sort of in the middle of the countryside and relaxing. But when you're, you know, between eighteen and twenty-one, there weren't those huge big nights out, or there weren't there wasn't much to do on our weekends. So we would get together and sort of fart around and make stuff. So that was instilled in us from throughout our entire three years there. I think we made a lot constantly. Um, regardless of whether or not we had a theater to put anything on it, and, you know, we'd do it in an old post room on the other side of campus. Um, so when we came down here, yeah, everyone was quite up for doing the same sort of stuff again. Um, and we we kind of kicked kicked into doing like bits and bobs. I had a group of friends from uni and an idea to adapt this book called The Boy Who Kicked Pigs, which was by Tom Baker. And it was sort of around that that we formed a little, um, like theater comedy creative call, uh, collective called kill the beast. Um, and uh, that I think was in the first or second year of moving to London and just sort of, um, asking pubs if in the daytime, they would let us use their, you know, back function rooms because people weren't playing darts in there until 5 PM and stuff like that. So we started quite early, I think, um, we were given a bit of a lifeline by the Lowry Theatre in Manchester who were interested in that that adapting that story and and gave us a bit of cash to do that so that kind of helped um it, i mean it was minimal it was nothing but yeah we we were quite restless so we we kicked into making things sort of as soon as we came down here it took a long time then after that to kind of you know turn those shows into tourable things mm. or um you know to get attention from other venues, other like uh, funding bodies and stuff like that. But we came down and kind of kicked straight into it and kind of pretended it was our fourth, fifth, sixth years of university, I think.
1: That's a really good way of describing it, actually. I haven't heard someone describe it like that. It's quite quite a good thing. (laughs) Did you know the library were interested in the text before you guys got interested in it? Was it a strategic thing
0: or...? No, it was all a bit of a fluke, actually, to be completely honest. We we'd had a show at university that was um I wasn't I had devised and, and created but wasn't on tour with, and, and that was sort of loosely touring around in the UK. and um, that Lowry um I was speaking to about something else and they wanted to get that show there, but the dates didn't work. And just while I was the call was sort of coming to an end. And I just said, I do want to adapt this book though, um, without having, you know, ever spoken to um like Faber and Faber or whoever, you know, it, it was written by Tom Baker, who was like 60s Doctor Who icon. Um, and it was just an idea, and, and it just so happened that the the producer that I was talking to at uh, Lowry at the time, the development person, Paul Cooper, um, had read had, had like known that book and I think had like read it to a like a nephew or something and was a fan or and also loved Tom Baker so it was like oh my god great let's talk about that um so it was all very accidental um I guess there's a tip always uh tell people about little germs of ideas that you've got because you never know it might just be the their dream project or a thing they were just thinking about as well Um so they they the Lowry Theatre were doing a thing called developed with or in development with I think at the time where they were giving young um uh, uh, unestablished companies I suppose little pots of cash just to develop an idea um that they could eventually present in some way shape or form at the Lowry it was never like you've got to make this show it's got to be an hour and a half long it's got to sell this many tickets on this run they were they were absolutely fantastic so yeah they just gave us some money that went into making all the costumes and props and stupid stuff we were you know not at that point yet where we were being um smart and paying ourselves but you know i think that's kind of what your early 20s is for right is if people are only going to give you a tiny amount we knew that we wanted it to look spectacular and sort of make a bit of a splash so we put all of the money on t- that Um we we sort of showed the lowry and, and presented like a dress rehearsal of this thing that we'd made and they loved it and they invited us to be their associate artists after that and that kill the beast um who was sort of still going and developing a lot of tv now which is really fun and exciting um we were all formed just off the back of that which was was really great it's
1: interesting what you said about share the little ideas that you have because i think the instinct in most people is to hold it close because someone might steal it yeah so what's do you still have that mentality now, with like sharing ideas and showing like concepts?
0: Yes, I was at a lunch yesterday with um with a, a potential client, um for a, a brand exp- well a sort of IP based experience in the US, and um was just rattling through these other ideas that I had that I thought could be really good because ultimately all you're doing, I think, in that scenario is showcasing. Your own creative thinking, which is good, and shows that you you've got lots of ideas. I also think you shouldn't be too overly precious with your ideas because you cannot tell anyone. And then a month before you start developing a thing, the exact same thing that you thought of came out just by sheer chance and osmosis and whatever. Um, so yeah, I think I think sharing stuff it, it both shows your creative thinking and, and uh, you know, communicates maybe some of your tone of voice before you've even got some, you know, you've even shoved someone in a seat and can actually show them your your work. Um, and it also might just happen to be the dream project for that person that they've been thinking about for some time and you guys come together and it's perfect.
1: It's really wise advice. Um, but, if, yeah, I think it's when you're I think when you're emerging and the ideas are all you have it's yeah. like it's, it's, it's quite difficult to let those go isn't it um...
0: yeah it is it definitely is but I think getting like uh, understanding that ultimately either now or further down the line you being able to sell your ideas ahead of showing them on opening night or something you know to a, a polished version of that is it it's going to have to happen you're going to have to get good at that at some point or you're going to have to get comfortable with it um and i i think like go start start sooner rather than later and get practicing your patter and your awkward elevator pitch and i'm utterly dreadful and i'm so bad at you know networking events or anything but if you are expressing zeal and excitement for an idea that's infectious and, and people really And even if maybe you've not worded it completely correctly and you're not actually getting to um, describe how you perfectly picture it in your head. If you're excited and you're expressing tone or mood or, you know, passion, then I think even that can push things over the line sometimes.
1: Can we talk about Swamp Motel?
0: Mm. Please. So
1: first of all, I'd love to know where the name came from and like what it represents for you
0: that question I get honestly get asked three or four times a week. And I think that's kind of where it came from was, and again, I sound like such an asshole, but when we started Swamp Motel, we deliberately wanted to kind of uh, create, we we, we first went to brands and agencies and had seen that they were, they were sort of jumping on the immersive bandwagon and theater and, Sort of tropes to try and do things like product launches or pop-up bars or things like that and we thought they were just terrible because they were getting their marketing and their advertising agencies to do it who were really great at print and digital but maybe not so great at how you navigate audience flow through a space how you design lighting in a way that is you know works both for promenade audiences and also exhibition spaces and So, um, or how you integrate a food and drink into like, a a, an immersive experience. So we wanted to be a sort of collective of theater makers that were unashamedly saying, um, you know, come and work with us. We're fantastic. You guys are doing it wrong and we can make your money go further. Um, and we also wanted to, again, a bit unashamedly and unabashedly be okay. Selling out a little bit and, and kind of, um, Saying we're by this point, like we know what we're doing. We've we've really honed this craft, and we're we're worth the money. So so come and work with us rather than giving it to Sachi and Sachi. But the, the the name came about because we hadn't done any projects. We hadn't actually done any client and um, brand experiences. We'd done all of this like amazing fringe theatre work. Um, and and Ollie and myself had been uh, creative associates at like Punch Junk, working on like little small projects. Um, which we we knew gave us lots of brilliant experience, but didn't you know we we couldn't use any of that stuff to to promote the company. So we wanted to create a name and a website and a kind of brand that um was sort of around mystery um so that people would think when they visited our website or when they started hearing about us that we were, omitting previous case studies because, you know, maybe we'd worked white label and we uh, were were really secretive, but really uh, um, in the know and uh, sought after. Uh, And then, you know, also swamps as sort of dark, creepy places of immersion that you can get lost in um, that are sort of boggy and misty and strange um, and a bit hypnotic. And then motels, I guess, as these sort of weird visitor passing places where you can come and check in, you can check in with us and have a booking, which can be, you know, a a down-at-heel room or the honeymoon suite if you wanna do a big experience. There was some sort of lingo there that it felt like we could could monopolize and and bastardize and kind of make what we wanted to make. Um, But yeah, to begin with, it was more, how can we make something a little bit weird that people are gonna be like, what is that thing? I don't get it. So then they'd ask us questions which is definitely, definitely not the way that you're supposed to promote yourself. We know that. But it felt a bit like an antidote to the other brand agencies um, and brand experience agencies that would be called like something and something with an ampersand. And it was always, you know, like very sans serif on on white backgrounds, perfectly kerned. And uh, we kind of wanted to be a a little bit dirtier and, and a bit more like, uh, in the shadows, I suppose. So it felt completely diametrically opposed, rather than like uh, like we were trying to be in competition with the other brand experience agencies. That makes complete
1: sense. That's and and you get that sense. So moving on, now that we know that, what what for you is the essence of a swamp motel experience?
0: I think um, we like to make the audience feel like the experience is has been designed and is being navigated by them and them alone. I think uh, maybe a slight, not bugbear, but sort of trend that you notice in the immersive and promenade theatre world is you obviously, to make any of the financial model work, because sets that big are so expensive and that many performers and everything, you need to push a lot of audience members through it, through any of those things. So from the get go we were always quite passionate about creating experiences with um small groups of audience members, ideally solo like audience members, though that rarely has we've ever been allowed to do that um so that the experience can feel like it's just for you there's no sound bleed where you're hearing you know a group five minutes ahead of you or um in the room behind you sort of coming and you're hearing actors repeating lines that you've heard before or things like that like I think I think that's a, a trademark of of what we do. We really want with the online stuff, with the live stuff, with even like the short film that we made recently. I think I want audiences to think that the experience they're having, they're in control of. It was made for them. If there are other people coming through this, surely they didn't do that thing or blah 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 blah. Um, and I think a, a new a new trademark that we've sort of found ourselves accidentally. Um, using a lot but but really excited by is um blending real world with this sort of fictional world so when we created our online experiences we didn't want it to just be like now we log into the game and the page in front of us on this website will be the game board if you like um actually we kind of wanted people to then be like oh well I can just I can look on Facebook I can refer- I know how to use this this platform i know how to use the internet it's endless okay if it's if we've got to find out what is you know this pub in suffolk is all about let's go on street view and see what it looks like from the outside let's go to gumtree and see if we can find an advert for this thing and find the mobile number to contact the seller and use tin to reverse google image search and stuff like that it, it, i think we we found that really thrilling i think and it, it can provide you with a Uh, your audience with a moment of like is this real I can't tell because this is about witches and sort of slightly ancient magic in the heart of London but I'm accessing it all through platforms and mediums that I'm using all day every day and feel very intuitive so yeah I think that that has become something that that we're really passionate and excited by Um,
1: yeah and you get your text from your mum halfway through and you you know the real world comes in the world you don't shut off and yeah. um when I did the drop the the moment that really stayed with me um and I won't spoil it for those who are going to do it and I would encourage people who are going to do it um but that moment where you realize you're in the center of London and the thing hasn't ended yet yeah. and you're on on you know and you're out and about and there are people that know that don't know what you're doing as well yeah Yeah. that is I'm trying not to give it away but the that moment for me was just like um yeah magic I I was in the thing
0: I'm so pleased to hear that yeah and I think that's we realize there's like a an understandable trend in um, immersive theater it's like taking the audience's phone from them or asking them not to use their phone which is like a combination of courtesy, right, when we're in the cinema and not wanting to give away spoilers and secrets. And those sets can look beautiful up close and in production photography, but then can look absolutely dreadful in an iPhone um, bit of footage and, and can damage your brand. And there's, it makes complete sense. But I think we were excited with the drop after seeing people in our online experiences use the devices that they use every day to um, you know investigate the story further to not take that phone off them at the start. And at a given point, I think you come to realize like, oh shit, this is an extra element to this, this is an extra tool I can use, be that for its torch or its phone call device, or, you know, it's um, Google maps or anything. Like it suddenly felt like that's what you do in that scenario. So you can, we can fuck with that and we can make that work for uh, pushing the narrative further.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay so we we've kind of touched upon what the experience is when you when you're thinking about creating an experience like this you've kind of you've kind of said about you know okay well audience agency is really important and how they navigate the world is really important to you what other things um, i guess are on your rule book when you start creating experiences like what are the most important things as a maker as a director
0: I think um, I think the the for me my my background and a sort of passion that I have, as you heard from my the MA I pursued, uh, is in like uh, scenic design and like you know going to a punch drunk show, like they're they're the, the absolute masters that I don't know how they'll ever be beaten mm-hmm. um, at like immersing you in a world through design, like it's just mind blowing and i think like wanting to to try and live up to that um that's always on a that's always one of the early starting points like we think very visually about our experiences and um and what surprising worlds the audiences can feel like they're genuinely inhabiting so d- design um uh you know the, and that runs from from scenic uh, through to sound and lighting um and uh, we really wanted in the drop to it, to use, uh, smell a lot. And we annoyingly we didn't end up being able to down to boring budgetary constraints. But, um, I think like, you know, there's a scene where you might end up having, you know, going into a room where an explosion has just taken place and having smoke and the smell of that sort of stuff in there, I think was, would have been amazing. But, um, yeah, so d- design is, is key. And then I guess the, uh, audience um narrative flow, so figuring out where those peaks and troughs of it, emotion come. Um and and be that by sort of lulling the audience into a false sense of security at different points, like again in the first act of the drop. Maybe you think you're you're doing something that actually you come to realise after a certain moment is not what you've been doing at all. And those sort of rug pull moments we find really exciting. And not just reserving those for the end of an experience, right? But being able to pepper pepper those throughout um and then i suppose uh like scripting ultimately like the old the old theaterness of it all like having having a script that feels good and is communicating the right things at the right time and having the, the best cast on board to communicate all of that where you know it's it, it is a world where that it's it's tricky right and you can be on a bit of a knife edge of if if you are you know we're talking about trying to uh trick audiences into believing a world is real but at the same time you do need to safeguard performers and make sure they're not being attacked or anything um so that that's uh a, a balancing act i would say in, in figuring out that audiences want theatricality we want to push realism on them our audience and actors both need to feel like they're in a like comfortable space to experience all of that so yeah just just creating theater but in that terrifying way of having your audience on stage with your actors um and then uh, you know a a boring bit but it's like just the sheer logistics of it all to to go back to my point about there's a reason you know in immersive you you want to have hundreds of people being able to go through your experience of course you do like look at the west end theaters can pack thousands in a night um you you have to kind of f- figure out that rota basically of how they're passing through every room if it is a, a promenade experience or how many versions of that room you can build so that you can have more groups going through that the maths behind all of that and how that impacts a budget you know you save on one thing but you're spending on another is um is is a lot to get your head around but i don't know is that that modeling as we sort of call it is um that's that's from really you you start considering that from really early on i would say which is something maybe we don't talk about enough because you talk about like creating theater and actually you we start with quite a logistical um point of view first that's always sort of venue and site responsive that's a bit of a boring way to end that
1: no let's let's talk about that then so is it is it purely financial for you like is it kind of how much can we? Have, in the same way that when you're working with Kill the Beast, it was kind of we'll put as much as we can into the show looking good, uh, so that it's not the detriment of us now living, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. What's what's We're your not, rationale? Not, not being able to live. Um, I think yeah, it's the it's the it's both. Um, not sound like a cop out, but so like with the Kill the Beast thing, we. It wasn't, it wasn't much money that the theater gave us enough to, you know, build loads of sets or anything. But what we did instead was to, to try and make something that still felt really original and thrilling for the audience to watch. We made, we put that money into making miniature model box sets that we then filmed inside and had like puppeteered elements to each of the model boxes. We filmed inside that. We had a huge projection screen that we back projected those sets, uh, onto and then the actors were in front of that so it sort of looked like a giant animated comic book that was happening on stage but obviously all of those ginormous sets were made out of cardboard really and just were writ large so it's that mix of like how can we be clever with our money which I think fringe theatre really pushes you to be and I, I love that I think that's such a thing we should champion um but that is going to give our audience the most like maybe accidentally um in, in trying to save money you give your audience actually a renew. Really Drilling experience so when you come to the drop we were really keen that you're not in a lift because it's it is an experience where you're locked in a lift that you're not in a lift that seems enormous right and seems like the size of a a, you know a huge industrial lift or something which you could do and you could change the sort of narrative setup but I wanted you to be able to go with your friends and you know and in a time when COVID isn't 100% gone and you maybe feel comfortable being in a in a group of four in a lift with your friends, but you wouldn't in a group of 40 um, with strangers. So, yeah, there are some boring constraints that then lead you to what I think is potentially a more thrilling audience moment where you feel like that is designed for you. You feel like maybe when something goes wrong, it, it really is going wrong that you might question if you were in a larger group. Um, I think all of that is yeah it's it's a bit of push and pull so there that we always go off you know what is the most amazing exciting audience interaction moment but at the same time we're now a company of like 12 full-time members of staff that we need to pay that venue has uh rent rental rates that we need to be able to pay uh the you know the cast needs to be paid everything all of that the lights need to be on so there's there's always that that toss up of, you know, what you're able to prioritize, I guess we're just trying to find ways now of innovating with maybe like automated tech or staggered entry times where you can um, push those like experiences with fewer audience members that aren't going to completely break your bank. Mm. Um, And that might end up being that the experience can only be 30 minutes, you can't have a, a 90 minute experience or it might mean that the ticket price for a 90 minute experience is 15 pounds more than you would hope it would be. It, I guess it's fig- trying to figure that out. And I, now that we're coming back from COVID and creating stuff in the live world again, we're having to consider all of that modeling of the experience so much more. It's um, it's interesting because we learned a load from the drop that we maybe wouldn't do on the next experience, or we definitely take this from it, but we wouldn't do that. Um, So it's a mix of the two, but I do think whenever I talk to people about making stuff, I want to be like, I I think money and making money can often be seen as like quite a grubby thing to talk about when actually that's not the case in any other industry at all. We're just like, we're such sort of, (laughs) we're artists. And so we never want to talk about that because we'd always do this anyway, which is true. But um, there, there are people who are, you know, trying to do it and, um you know theme parks trying to give audiences experiences in ways that you know completely stack up and and make a company um more money so then they're able to invest and innovate in more exciting ways
1: yeah absolutely you spoke a little bit about um the tech element of your work and i think one of the most impressive things about um it's, it's called the Iskander, isn't it? Or Ikander? Iskander? Is,
0: Isklander. Isklander. Isklander Islander with a K in it, is it? Right. I mean, I mean that's not So a it's
1: a, that's, that's your series of three um, digital um, experiences that are a part of a series, right? Yes.
0: Yeah, so they started out, it was sort of a response to lockdown. It started out with just just one, part one that was called Plymouth Point. And yeah. it was, um, we we were suddenly without any client work we'd never done our own independent project before we definitely never made an online game or experience and we just thought everyone's on zoom everyone is sick of doing a quiz right Mm. By what week three so we just thought (laughs) maybe like you can use zoom as your as your auditorium and like maybe you can jump off from here and go into different story worlds so yeah we made part 1 in I think it was we launched it at the start of May 2020 so about 6 weeks after the the first lockdown and then from there we made parts 2 and 3 over the the following sort of 18 months
1: yeah you I think you're doing yourself a disservice it's not just a zoom experience i would say you know it has all of these other elements so i th- i think my my question for you is how did you as a team learn the tech knowledge that you need because it's because it it is Zoom, but it's also not Zoom, right? It's it. Yeah, it, there's it started, a clever way that you go about that.
0: Yeah. So it started out fully. We used Zoom. We didn't have any money. We 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 literally tried to do things. I think I think we tried to spend maximum five hundred pounds, and we. We we use Zoom. We found functionality like a plugin that you could download. I'm probably getting all of these words wrong, and our head of production and creative technologists smashing their heads against the wall. But we we down we had a plugin where you could it could trick Zoom to um, thinking a live participant had joined, and it was a video that you could cue. So then we just filmed an actress talking to camera as though it was live. You know, without a window directly behind her, and lighting it so that it could be day, it could be night. Um, it didn't really matter what time of day you were watching it, and that kicked off the experience. So you, we automatically we were not having to pay an actress every night, which you know at the time was was important because it was just a test. We didn't want to have to contract someone, and 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 you know it didn't work. Um, but what was great about that is it meant eventually that like a hundred different teams could be playing all at the same time, right, around the world, and you weren't having to have actors try and jump into all of those calls but yeah so we we did it all on zoom we originally had you having to hack into like a, a gmail inbox account after finding out the name of someone's dog on facebook through their facebook pictures and that would be their password with their birthday and um, but it, it was all just a sort of test we felt like after a few weeks we kind of got it working and it felt really good and more and more people were buying tickets and, and, and playing it and And then we kind of realized, like, oh, God, Zoom can't handle this. Like, we couldn't set up as many rooms because it costs loads of money. So, uh, And Google had, you know, seen too many people hack into this um, uh, Gmail account, which, you know, is good to know. But uh, so they sort of shut us down and we we scrambled a bit and made our own email provider for that. And our um, our production team created our own video conferencing platform, which when they were exploring that, they sort of, are just geniuses and were able to build in automation and you know if you put certain keywords in so when you do find a password for something and you you tell the the elderly lady that you're you're talking to on the zoom call or think you're talking to then when that comes up in the text box it could cue another video without there being a stage manager sort of back of house watching the back of the zoom call which to begin with it was it was just me and my the other co-founder Ollie were just sort of watching games and hitting go on videos, and it was it was relatively clunky and cheap. But um, yeah, eventually, sort of through playing with it more and through it breaking, we just would find new ways of doing it. That in the end, it sort of ran like a, a relatively well-oiled machine, and we we ran for about yeah eighteen months, maybe two years in total, roughly, um, and uh, ended up launching in America and Australia and New Zealand and obviously the pandemic we we all know for that two-year period 18 months was so sort of back and forth back and forth that it was nice to be able to keep making and readjusting the content um, for people to enjoy during that weird awful time.
1: Yeah that's that's that makes sense so it's the the tech is there to create these amazing moments but also to make your lives easier so you can focus up more on the amazing moments right that's the kind of mentality
0: yeah and to the to the point you know to let's keep talking about it to the money point to the dirty yeah. word thing um it 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 meant that we could suddenly uh, have a world where we paid actors you know a good a good fee for a day Um, That that we a bit like film, right? We always sort of shook our fists at the film world and was like, "Oh, it's so annoying, right?" Because sure, they're expensive to create, but then they exist forever, and you're able to have people experience that story forever and ever and ever. Whereas we could make a, a show that we really loved, and and the cost of running that per night is just astronomical. You could never ever have it running forever. I mean, you can obviously look at lame is, but um we for us, for people who weren't, weren't up there, it always felt a bit like,. Ugh. So when we realized that if there's a way that you can automate it and it doesn't feel fake and it still feels integrated and you can type to her and she's responding, but talking to you on video, then um, then then that's going to save us like so much money by not having performers there. We hired a lot of stage managers to run the shows in the backgrounds, like again, all over the world during that time, which was great and felt good in, you know, as a as a thing to do and to have experienced people on hand and to work with people in the industry who obviously couldn't get to the theater at that time. Actors could at least still maybe do stuff on Zoom, but stage managers weren't literally, you know, sort of able to do much at all. So um, yeah, it was, it was beneficial I think to both the, user journey because it made it feel really slick and integrated and to ultimately the the financial model of how, how we've made it work. Yeah. I guess
1: my, like selfishly, my question is how, uh, two things, how do you know the type of people who can make a version of a bespoke version of zoom? And also like, how do they do that? Like what is the, what is the magic behind it you know who are these people
0: i'm so happy that we i that we found them Um, and it's one of the very first things i said like it's people people introduce you to people so like um that you know we we have a a collective now who have sort of worked at places like punch junk and secret cinema and all all over the world doing amazing things and then also just lighting designers who are really interested in maybe automation or how you can fiddle about with with online tech um i think we've we've just been i was going to say lucky but actually we've just been around a long time now and and working and like interested in interesting people um so with our film we made a short film recently called the altar and we, we knew we wanted to, like, develop and, uh, like, try and play with a new way. Okay, what's a new thing we could do if Isklander and Plymouth Point was a new response to the pandemic? And we loved that we could start sort of playing with film a little bit there. What's a, a new way of viewing a story that would feel interactive and like a, a twist on something else? And our creative technologist, Leo, showed us a video of a test where you could sort of um, hit space at any time when you're watching a short film. And it would cut between two uh, different feeds, and and we were suddenly like, oh, that could be cool. You could, uh, you could then film the same room from the same angle at like nighttime and daytime and click between, and you're able to skip forward and backwards in time. So I think just sort of meet people and chat to people that uh, you know you've you've met at a party have gone, oh, that's interesting, and I once did this thing and. You you quickly I think find lots of people who like you are interested in in similar things and then as you progress and develop over the years their interests shift and change and inform yours and uh, inspire like yeah new ways of you working as well but yeah. I mean they are they're completely amazing I wouldn't know how to do any of it so I can't answer any physical technical questions not because I'm safeguarding any secrets. More because I literally haven't got a clue. But
1: <laughs> that's good to know, isn't it? I think, especially if you' um emerging, there's a pressure that if you don't know something, that oh my god, there's something wrong with you, and there's a failure. And actually, you know, you're making amazing work, but you're also relying on other people who fill in gaps, and and but together you can can create an amazing thing.
0: A hundred percent. I think there's no like, there's absolutely well for me anyway. I'm sure that are you know, there's i i think considering m- yourself ever as like an author that's going to deliver something completely is like just a bit it just sounds knackering for one thing like why do that and um, but also a bit limited and a bit limiting um you can you can I, I found myself i think in my early 20s being a bit of a jack of all trades either because we didn't have the budget and it felt embarrassing to ask someone to storyboard this or design a poster for that or you you find yeah you the the alternative is you find people that um want to develop that kind of stuff as well and in working together you're both helping each other out right you don't want to be the person just always asking people for a favor but if it is developing a working relationship that's beneficial to them if it's potentially going to lead to more uh, collaborations together then that's always a good a good starting point i think yeah absolutely
1: my next question is kind of um, a little bit outside the box, but um, what what keeps you motivated? What and, and maybe talk about um, what you know what's important to you outside of the arts and like obviously it's like making great experiences for audiences is one of those right? But like what what motivates you personally?
0: Nothing else. No. <laughs> um, uh, what motivates me? That's a really good question. I think like bored quite easily um it's definitely not i know i have have spoken about money a lot it's definitely not that um but it is nice to not panic now every time like i have to pay my rent um i think what motivates me yeah is is like having knowing that now when you if i have a stupid idea um on the bus or in the shower or something that i think that could be fun like knowing that that eventually one day can be the drop or can be a, you know another experience that we create um it it's great because there were so many years obviously where you'd have all of those ideas but they just cool It's an idea how the hell are you going to develop that um that that's really motivating knowing that if you've got an idea you can you can figure out a way i'm not i'm not sounding uh, like molly may from Love Island with there's everyone has 24 hours in a day, but I mean you can find a way. You can find people. It might take 10 years. It might take 10 minutes. And actually, it's just a scene that you you give a go at and doesn't really work. Um, but knowing that you can take a tiny little daft idea and 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 make it flesh or make it into something is quite. I feel quite motivated by that. Food, like food, quite a lot. Um, reading. Um, and like. TV. I'm just a really big TV fan, which I know is sort of not cool to say, but um, it's amazing. And it's really cheap for the user. I love that. Like it's almost free to, to watch a lot of TV um, a lot of good TV. I just think that's great. I remember like working in theatre and not being able to afford to go to the theatre and being really like annoyed by that. Um, so I like a lot of TV. Not
1: probably.
0: Favorite series? Oh, I mean, there's far too many to say. Surely, Um, I'm Mad Men in lockdown. I watched for the first time. I watched Mad Men, and I was so sort of bored for the first six episodes, but in like a brilliantly soporific way. And then it just became oh so good. I loved it. I really want to rewatch it. Um, I loved. Years and years, the Russell T Davies thing a couple of years ago, and it's a sin, obviously. And Geary Haji is amazing. It's like a uh, sort of like a Japanese gangster thing set in London, which is brilliant. Um, Happy Valley is obviously great. Fleabag, um, the other two is a brilliant American comedy series. Um, I mean, I could go on and on and on. I I do like TV a lot.
1: Yeah, it's a good it's a good flavor though of <laughs> your of your of my uh, interests yeah um we've spoken a lot about kind of your successes um do you have a kind of favorite failure or do you have a moment in your career that you're like well that didn't go to plan but I'm almost glad it didn't because we wouldn't be where we are now without it is it is there a moment
0: you can Ooh. think of um yeah probably definitely failures but i don't know that they necessarily (laughs) led led like as poetically into any successes but i do think it's good to talk about even if they didn't um so like i worked on um two things one more recently i did an adaptation of the invisible man for a theater and and wrote the script and it just didn't work It, it was pre the elizabeth moss film a few years ago but um why didn't it work? I think, like I um tried to make it really filmic and bombastic and was working with you know magicians and directors, and was like, "I'm just gonna write anything, and they'll turn it into this amazing show and uh, which they were really supportive of and and that's an amazing way and um and like offer to be given as a writer. It's like go for it, like write, let's all figure it out together let's let's see what um but realistically it was also probably quite a naive way to work so um maybe that a bit and then I worked my my first like um scenic design job when I was in London doing my master's was um on a tv show on ITV2 called Celebrity Juice do you remember Celebrity Juice I do Is this, remember maybe it's still going Keith Lemon yeah Keith Lemon and I just absolutely hated it and I, I was a failure because I lied in my job interview and said I had Photoshop and could use it and I neither had it nor had ever used it. Um so frantically a friend sort of talked me through a free version overnight because I you could not afford to buy Photoshop. Um but also the other stuff the like hands-on design stuff I felt like I could do really well but it was you know it was creating like a, I, I really remember I had to make, a, I had to bake a pie, a gravy pie with dildos in it and vibrators. And I just remember sort of washing that prop up one day and being like, what am I doing? Like covered in gravy. Um, but it was more just failure because I think I, I really didn't assert myself at all. I was very sheepish because it was my first job and sort of, my my sort of boss there was kind of sort of horrible and the hours were grim and you just say yes to everything don't you you just kind of like yes i'll be i'll be there and i'll do this and um working you know for no money and on days when i shouldn't have been working and stuff like that so that was like a real failure and also i really remember being like it would be okay if the thing was good it would kind of be okay if we were on something if it was happy valley you kind of wouldn't mind being treated a bit like crap um, and also not being very good and recognizing you weren't very good, but um, it, it felt annoying for all the, the outcome at the end of it to be Keith Lerman's celebrity juice, um, which in a way is probably horrible to say, but it was also horrible to work on.
1: But what, what's the learning? What's the lesson there?
0: Uh, I think like, you know, what's good well, yeah, you, I, know, I knew what was good and I feel like I could have definitely pushed back and been like, what if this was red or something? I'm giving it, that's an arbitrary response, but you you can, like, don't be afraid to say when you think like, I think it should be like this because all they're going to do is go, eventually, if you've said it two or three times, they go, look, we're not going that way now, so drop it, then you can drop it. But you should definitely say when you think like, I really don't think it should be like that um obviously do it in a nice way uh um but yeah and i think also like the hours thing now i'm really like i don't like like gross endless hours like i don't get it i don't think it makes anyone work well and it would it was always like i mean and now just laying into that show but like the design work on that show you'd get the script the two days before, you'd have one day to build all of the props and the sets and the design and the the stupid games and stuff. And then you'd shoot two episodes the next day. And it was like, it just made no sense. And it's like, if you, you know, if you can find a way to sort of, I I know that world is, I'm being very naive because I think the TV world is manic for deadlines, but it it all just felt very strange. And we do that in theater sometimes, right? Like a tech rehearsal will be like, well, it's three, 24 hour days and we're just going to have to order more pizzas in and it's like guys we can find a better way to do this um i think we've really tried to in kill the beast and in swamp motel like over the years now pushed for those days to kind of be gone and not not see that as you know a way to validate the work like well we're working very long hours um i think no that's silly you're just going to drive everyone mad
1: so what do you do in sort Like what hours do you keep? What, how do you, like what are the practical things that people can take from your practice?
0: We are a, a full-time company. So we work uh, sort of 10 till six, 9.30 till six every day, Monday to Friday, uh, and you know, we have an office. It's very, it, it, in a way it works a lot more like a traditional agency in that sense. We do a lot of, um, especially now we're, we're coming back to a lot of live stuff. A lot of work for um brands and uh and brand clients um in that they'll have a new thing they want to launch and we'll we'll pitch our ideas around that or we'll be developing um an experience already for another company um but so how do, we how do you safeguard against that kind of
1: uh, mental
0: getting hours yeah
1: how, how yeah the the how do you look after your staff the wellness of your staff
0: we have a, a head of production and an entire production team that are really all about this as well and have come from um should i say no i probably shouldn't say but like have come from that world as well mm. and, and don't like it so we we have you know uh, certain hours that when we are doing an experience and we're doing like you know the build over those days we have like a, a set amount of breaks that we always have We always finish at like a certain time. People don't work more than, I think it'll be eight hours a day. Um, And yeah, we just make sure that we wrote to staff. If it's suddenly like, well, the ceiling's not built in this space. We need to work through the night. You know, you have to have factored that in. And we're dealing with client money a lot of the time. So we're, we're able to. But from very early on, the budgets that we write will be super realistic, probably overstaffed so that, that we aren't making like working people like absolute dogs because it's it's just going to lead to a really miserable vibe which the client will 100 percent pick up on which won't keep them happy you know they'll always be there and wanting you to do more that is just a thing that we have come to learn but um they that's better i think than them coming onto a set or into a space and picking up on a really awkward vibe they want to come to you time and time again because that felt great, that day felt exciting and the team felt really into it and knew what they were doing and like a well-oiled machine. Um, that's gonna get you more more work, I think, if you're doing stuff for clients like we do. Um, yeah. But yeah, we wanna keep everyone sane and happy. And also our team are so good. That like i wanna I want them to stay and and not to go off and 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 join and work for other amazing immersive companies um so yeah we want we want to treat everyone really well
1: that's great and final question um I want you to imagine you're kind of early twenties again, and salt motel doesn't exist um what What practical things do you recommend? someone who was interested in this world do now with the the world that we're living in right now?
0: Great question. Um, With the world we're living in right now, uh, (laughs) I, I would say a couple of things. I would go to as many affordable fringe theater shows as you can. And be that, like, you know, um, London Vault Festival, right? Or I was going to say Edinburgh Fringe, but I don't think affordability sort of um, is the the word there. Brighton Fringe, like uh, the new Diorama Theatre is fantastic. Like, I think you can go see as much as you can, hang out in the bar afterwards, And tell people that on things that you liked, you know, don't be disingenuous. Tell people what you liked about their thing, what you would, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. I'd love to talk to you about that one time. Like, could I go? Could we go for a coffee? Could we have a pint? Could we do anything? I think genuinely talking and being like unashamedly open about what you want to do is um, the best way. And I, I I mean, I mentioned Fleabag in the TV, like recommends. I feel like I listened to a podcast with Phoebe Waller-Bridge recently and I think that's how they came to write Fleabag. I think like her and Vicky Jones, just she went up to her and was like, I want to do a play. You seem cool. So I, I that would I, I found that to be hugely beneficial in, in our world. Um, and also you might just, if you don't make a work colleague, you might make a friend or date one of them. Um, so I, I would do that. And I think, yeah, I think I would try and do... I think I would try, and oh, it, it's tricky. I feel like that we, in creating Swamp Motel, were kind of like saying to people, "Don't do that. Use us. We're better than that." And I, I, I kind of want to give that as a piece of advice, but I'm, I'm aware it sounds a bit trite, and I don't really know exactly how you can go and do that. But I do think recognizing the value of of your talent as if you're a theatre director or a writer, right? Say you're a writer and you see some like pretty lame, tired copy on a tube advert, like I honestly, DM the company and say I'm a copywriter. Here's another version of how you should write that advert. I'm. I think. I think I could do it better. Hire me. Like the the cheekiness and the like, the kind of um <laughs> the gumption maybe of doing something like that can be really cheap, right? You can do that just in in a in a tube journey, maybe. But I think that that can can be an in sometimes and I, I think it can get you noticed. Obviously try not to sound like a dick. But there's ways that you can do that where y- you know you can talk to people about I don't think you're running this this improv comedy night that well. I think you need like more ticketing people on the door if you're getting into producing. Like can I do that? I can come down here give me 5% of, you know, the fifth night that I do it of the box office and then that can go up to 10% and you can chat and and kind of, yeah, suss stuff like that out. Recognize that your brain is clearly fixed in this world. You wanna work in it. You're clearly like engaged, intuitive, and there are other people working in similar industries or in the very industry who aren't gonna be as good as you. So that's okay to be like, I think I could do this. Um, I wish I'd been a bit more like that because I, I, I did a lot of like feeling like I could do, oh, I could do this better, um, and not much of like saying like cheerily to people, do you need a hand? Because I think I could do this. Um, I think that's that would be my advice.
1: Yeah, And I think what you're, what I'm hearing from you saying is that you both know what you are interested in, but you you also interestingly you know what you don't like. Or you know what yeah. you're you're opposed to in the industry, and knowing that is quite an. you you're. I mean, I've never heard that um, expressed that before.
0: I think that's also why, like, go and see as much as you can, um, because that's really just going to help. Like, start guiding your taste. And also at this lunch yesterday, I didn't. I haven't been to see anything. I've been so useless. And the the other people were like. Have you seen this? I've just been to see this and this and that, and I'm going to see this tomorrow. And I was like, uh, uh, um, so it's also it's quite handy because you, you, you then might meet someone in a pub. It's not always a pub, I promise, but, um, <laughs> and you might say, talk about something that you loved from a couple of years ago and they produced it, or, you know, there's, or they talk about something they've done and you go, I remember that. I love this about it or whatever. Like, I think, I think having that stuff in you and kind of ready to go that sounds a bit cynical but it is it's great for those like n- lame networking chats otherwise you kind of just get to like so whereabouts do you live uh, and i'm just crap yeah. at that point
1: it's it's real currency isn't it yeah um clem thank you so much for your wisdom and your honesty generosity really appreciate it especially on your birthday especially well, hey, on, my you birthday. on your birthday um feels really, like really it, it feels
0: nice it's funny, you keep you know, to keep talking about early 20s. I'm 33 today and it feels, yeah, sort of lovely and uh, terrifying in equal measure to think back.
1: Well, happy birthday and thank you so much for coming on. Um, people can find you, Swamp Motel. The website is, is a gorgeous website. Um, the so URL much. and all your social links will be in the podcast notes. Fantastic. So, um, thanks, Clem, again, and uh, have a good rest of your day.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.